Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to Seeker Plus, a video podcast where we explore one topic across three episodes. I'm your host. I'm Julian Huguet. This week, we're doing surgeries. I mean, we're not doing surgeries. We're talking about surgeries. Trust me, nobody wants me near a scalpel. So even though surgeries are really common these days, it's still pretty incredible to me that surgeons can cut people open and then dig around and afterwards people feel better. I mean, we've learned how to remove tumors, fix brains, stitch up wounds. We can swap out entire body parts. So my first question is, where did this all start? I mean, who was the first person to have a sick friend and say, hey, you know what's gonna make you feel better? Let me cut you open. It'll be great, don't worry about it. Well, archeologists have actually found evidence of surgery that goes as far back as the Neolithic period in which five to 10% of the skulls found had holes carved into the top of their skull. That's a huge percentage if you think about it. Five to 10%, so what, one in every 10 of your friends had a hole in their head back then? This practice of carving head holes is called trepanation, and evidence has been found in skulls throughout the world. Trepanation was practiced in Europe, Asia, and both North and South America. The practice actually lasted all the way up until the 16th century, which is not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. The theories on why ancient people did this particular surgery vary and probably differed from culture to culture. It may have been used to actually treat head injuries or pain, or maybe it was done to release spirits from the body. There's much of this early surgery that remains a mystery, much of early surgeries in general that remains a mystery, but this is proof that we've been carving up people for a long time. Some of these skulls even showed regrowth and healing, which means that some of these people actually lived through it. So maybe we need to give these ancient surgeons a little bit more credit. Besides trepanation, there are many surgeries that can be traced back to ancient Egypt and Greece. Surgery in ancient India was especially advanced with a legendary surgeon named Sushruta in 600 BCE. He performed skin grafts, even facial reconstructions, and he only had basic tools, a small level of success, and no anesthesia, so I assume he also had a lot of screaming patients. But more recently, in the second century AD and on the other side of the globe, one surgeon in Rome named Galen dominated the field. His writings became the main source for Western medicine for more than a thousand years. He saw how arteries and veins carried different colors of blood and proposed early versions of the circulatory system. I'm gonna take a sidebar here and say, I don't mean red and blue, I mean, bright red and dark red. That's, blood's never blue, it's always red. Galen also figured out how spinal cord injuries worked and pioneered concepts of the central nervous system. The problem with Galen is that all of his knowledge of anatomy came from dissecting animals. Now, it's not his fault, it was illegal to dissect or experiment on humans at the time. But as you may have guessed, the bodies of apes and pigs, well, they're different than humans, inside and out. As a result, he believed humans had the womb of a dog, the kidneys of a pig, and the brain of a cow or a goat. He even added some body parts that we don't have. In particular, he thought that human bodies had an important cluster of blood vessels in the head called the reti mirabile, because he found them in sheep. The fact that his writings prevailed for so long led to many misunderstandings is putting it nicely, but misunderstandings in medicine. That and medical schools believed it was more important to read Galen's work than to actually learn from exploring the body during surgery. 
any discrepancies found during surgery on actual people, I'll remind you, well, that was considered an error with that person's body rather than Galen's work, which is insane. I feel like it should also be pointed out, it wasn't until the 1900s you would have been more likely to survive a surgery than die from it. This probably had something to do with that. It's really not great odds, if I'm honest. All of this leads me to something that I don't think a lot of us think about when it comes to something that was vital to improving the field of surgery, and that is how we visualize the human body. For a really long time, surgeons were just going in blind. They didn't know what our organs looked like, how they connected to each other. They didn't have that song, you know, the hip bones connected to that. They didn't have it. This, of course, is where scientists like Leonardo da Vinci had to be sneaky about where he, uh, quote unquote, found bodies to dissect. When dissections were allowed, one of the greatest advances in the field was simply when physician Andreas Vesalius in 1543 published anatomical drawings of the body in his textbooks. He was one of the people ridiculed for disagreeing with Galen, and it took some time for his views to take hold. In a lot of ways, having drawings, not just written text about anatomy, was a serious leap forward. Even today, the advancements in being able to see inside the human body are key to making surgeons better and better at their jobs. If a surgeon can 3D print a heart to explore and practice on, or practice in VR before ever picking up a real scalpel, their surgery will be much safer. We'll save all this for episode 3. It's safe to say, though, I'm pretty pumped about it. Beyond advances in visualization, there are two other things that really skyrocketed the field of surgery. They changed it from an experimental field that was really positioned as a painful last resort to a more commonplace miracle cure. These things are anesthesia and antiseptics. Anesthesia is the ability to knock somebody out while you cut them open, and it made everything so much easier. There were attempts to ease a patient's pain using alcohol or opium or herbs, but eventually, ether was discovered, and even though it was great, a huge advancement, it wasn't ideal. One thing is, the dosage for ether isn't reliable, so it's easy to accidentally use too much and kill the patient, which is counterproductive. Ether also causes a choking sensation, so patients had to be held down while it took effect. And oh yeah, it's really flammable. But over time, other effective anesthetics were discovered, like nitrous oxide, chloroform, and eventually the modern mixtures that we use today. After all this time, though, we still don't really know how anesthesia works. I mean, we understand local anesthesia. It's designed to numb specific areas of the body, and it works by stopping nerves from delivering pain signals to the brain. But general anesthesia that knocks somebody out entirely, it's not a question of simply putting people to sleep. It needs to block pain, turn off reflexes, prevent the release of stress hormones, keep the heart rate and blood pressure chill, and needs to make sure that the patient has no memory during an operation. How though? How does this work? Well, one recent study on fruit flies found that anesthesia freezes a neuron's ability to fire, leading to a loss of consciousness. They figured it out by dousing cells in chloroform and observing how clusters of lipids in the cell membrane break apart in the anesthetic, kind of like a bunch of balls on a pool table. The scientists think that these lipids are a sort of go-between for a mechanism related to consciousness, which... That's so exciting, because now we're starting to crack the code on how consciousness works in the brain. It could have huge implications for sleep studies and certain disorders, and I'd love to talk about consciousness, but we're here to talk about surgery, so I have to focus in. 
Even surgeries done with anesthesia, though, had a low success rate until antiseptics were discovered. Surgeons used to wear the same clothes over and over, and they let them build up with dried blood and pus and vomit. And I'm really sorry if you're having lunch right now. One of my favorite stories from this period of medical history is about this physician named Ignaz Semmelweis. He was working in the maternity ward of a hospital in Berlin, and it bothered him that 13% of women giving birth in his ward were dying slowly and painfully of something called childbed fever. Around the same time, a doctor friend of Semmelweis got a wound while performing an autopsy, and he later died of a blood poisoning that mimicked the symptoms of childbed fever. In this hospital, doctors were doing autopsies on cadavers and then delivering babies in the same shift, just poking around inside some dead guy and then going and touching moms and their newborns without ever washing their hands or anything. Semmelweis concluded that something from the cadavers was poisoning his patients. So, before germ theory had even entered the world of medicine, Semmelweis implemented strict hand sterilization practices, and his mortality rate dropped to 0.19% by the end of the year. So, from 13% to less than 0.2%. Way to go, Semmelweis! Later, with the discovery of germ theory, medical staffs started scrubbing surfaces, washing hands, and placing antiseptic barriers over wounds, resulting in lower rates of infection and death across the board, all leading to the hypersterilization of modern operating rooms. Which brings us to today, where we're operating on people's brains, hearts, feet, and all the stuff all around it and in between. So, let's talk about how these surgeries are done and some of the most incredible surgeries of all time. Because I feel like medicine has come so far, and yet we take for granted how amazing some of this stuff truly is when you break it down. So I'd like to talk about one of the most common surgeries, one of the most advanced surgeries, and maybe one of the more complicated ones. And just for fun, I'm gonna throw in a favorite of mine that I found along the way, like one of the longest surgeries. It took place in 1951, it lasted 96 hours, and it removed an ovarian cyst. Part of why it took so long was because they had to drain 200 pounds of fluid from the cyst before removing it. Fun! Okay, so let's first start with one of the most common surgeries in the world, but one that's far from simple, and actually it's kind of makes me squeamish when I talk about it again. Really glad we don't have to show these. I'm talking about cataract removal. Yeah, we're going to talk about eyeballs and sticking needles in them. By some estimates, there are more than 3 million cataract surgeries per year in just the United States. And you're probably asking yourself, what is a cataract? Well, you probably know what it is, but not really what it is. So, I'll explain. It's one of the leading causes of blindness in the world. It happens when basically your eye gets cloudy because some proteins start to clump together in the lens. The lens is part of the eye that helps you to focus, so you can, you know, see. So as these proteins break down and clump together, that obviously makes it so you can't see. Doctors compare it to looking through a frosted window. Now, I won't get too much into it because this is a series about surgery, not the eye, but we can do one on the eye. It's really cool how the eye works. Obviously, cataract surgery is a way to remove that cataract so you don't go blind. Well, how is this done? Well, one of the most popular ways to remove a cataract is with a needle, sound waves, and a vacuum. 
I'm not kidding, it sounds so sci-fi. First, surgeons cut an opening in your eye, one big enough for a needle tool to get in. Now, I say needle tool, but it's not really a needle because folks, it is so much more than that. Once this tool is in your eye, it emits ultrasound waves inside your eyeball. And these ultrasound waves actually break up or emulsify the proteins. This same tool then suctions all of them out of your eye. After this, they put in a new artificial lens and it's done. So to repeat, they cut your eyeball, stick a probe into it, blast some sound waves around inside and then <laughs> suck out the clouds. Yeah, it's so cool. I just love the idea that surgery can be something like this, not necessarily opening someone up, removing something and then sewing them back together. This is using sound waves to solve a problem. It's kind of like doing eye surgery with lasers, which, oh yeah, of course is a thing. LASIK reshapes your cornea with a laser to make you see better, which obviously much better than a doctor just doing it with their fingers like a potter with clay on a pottery wheel. Okay, so needles and eyeballs, tough to think about. I'm going to stop saying it. Let's take it up a notch. Let's talk about stopping your heart and then sewing something taken out of your leg into it to make it healthier. This, my friends, is coronary artery bypass surgery. It's an open heart surgery, meaning that surgeons have to open the chest wall to get to the heart, as opposed to closed heart surgery where they can go in through a smaller incision. With coronary artery bypass surgery, they also have to stop the heart. Now, I wanted to talk about this surgery because like cataract surgery, it seems pretty common. I mean, heart disease is the leading cause of death in America year after year. I've heard the term bypass surgery and open heart surgery my whole life, but I never really understood exactly what they involved. So I thought it'd be fun to get into all of the bloody details, but like bloody with a, a good outcome in the end, you know, a, a positive bloody. Okay, so briefly, why would someone need this surgery? Well, when one of the arteries to your heart gets clogged or blocked, it's not good. It decreases blood flow to your heart, can lead to a heart attack, and that could be fatal, which, again, not good. So we need a way to fix that. How do we do that? We bypass the clogged arteries with a new, healthy, unclogged one from another part of your body. This surgery can also be used for going around arteries afflicted with other issues. But before we can do any of that, doctors have to cut open your chest with a sternotomy. It's also called cracking the chest, which is just the grossest three-word phrase I've ever heard. After surgeons crack that chest, they go harvesting for veins. Again, this whole thing is being done because of a blocked or clogged artery. Doctors need to find a new one to add to that oh-so-important heart. The main veins used for this come from either your arm, leg, or the preferred choice, the internal mammary artery in the chest. Now, this is a preferred choice because unlike the veins in the arm and leg, the mammary artery is, well, an artery. It means it'll hold up better once grafted onto the heart. The other thing is, it's right there, right near the heart. You don't have to take it out of a limb and put it in the chest. You just move over a little bit and, oh, okay, what a surprise, there it is. Special thanks, by the way, to our editor, Matt's dad, for this information. It was really difficult sifting through complicated medical papers to research this, so we reached out to Seeger Plus's official cardiologist. Thanks, Matt's dad. Moving on. Once we've got that replacement vein, it's time to stop the heart. Doctors will inject the heart with a chemical agent called cardioplegia, and it'll put the heart into a rest. It'll stop beating, which makes it much easier to work on. You wouldn't want to work on your car engine while it's running. 
The solution is also cold. It cools down the heart, helps protect the tissue during surgery. But if the heart is stopped, won't that kill the patient and you know, kind of achieve the opposite of what we're going for? Not if you're using a handy-dandy heart-lung machine that'll help keep blood circulated and oxygenated. Why is it called a heart-lung machine? Thanks for asking. In a normal, healthy person, oxygenated blood is pumped out of the heart and goes throughout their body, dropping off oxygen and nutrients along the way. Then this oxygen-depleted blood goes back into the heart, which directs it into the lungs, it gets oxygen back, and the process repeats. So, in order to ensure that oxygenated blood is still keeping the body you know, alive, doctors hook up two tubes to the heart. One takes deoxygenated blood out. It's fed into the machine and oxygenated. Then it's fed into the second tube and put back into the heart and pumped throughout the body. Really fascinating stuff. Okay, so now the patient is knocked out, they're cut open, and their heart is still empty and cold, just like my ex's. This is when surgeons can finally sew on a new artery to bypass the clogged one. They sew one end of the new vein or artery right below the block section, and the other end into the aorta. So now the blood will literally just bypass that section and deliver that sweet, sweet blood uninterrupted. Once that's all set, doctors will get the blood flowing, take the patient off the blood pumping machine, and sew them back up. I want to say, I love taking deep dives into this, because even the simple version of this surgery is impressive. Open heart surgery. But... Then you get into the details about cooling liquids and stealing veins and blood pumping machines. It, it just makes you appreciate it that much more. Okay, I wanted to end with a surgery that always makes the list of longest surgeries or most complicated surgeries, and that is separating conjoined twins. The problem is we can't really break down step by step how this procedure happens like we did with the previous surgeries because it really is a case by case thing. It depends on how the twins are connected. That all comes down to if they share important organs or veins. For instance, if twins shared a heart, there'd be no way to separate them. The process of becoming a conjoined twin happens in the womb. It's when a fertilized egg starts to split to make identical twins. But if the split happens too late, it doesn't happen all the way. Some also think that eggs can come back together at some point during the pregnancy. Doctors can see this on ultrasounds and can start making plans for surgery even before the twins are born. A lot of separation surgeries are done on babies and toddlers depending on what's safe. Which brings us to the first step in separation, making sure that survival is possible. If doctors are confident in that, they can start with expanding the skin at the point of separation to make the separation easier. This involves surgically putting balloons under the skin and slowly filling them up so the body creates more skin. Then, before the surgery, doctors can take the balloons out. Now they have more stuff to work with after the procedure. And because these procedures are so complicated, it usually takes a huge team to ensure success. In one example from 2011, a pair of twins were connected at the head, and doctors were worried about one twin having too few veins in the head after the separation. So, they did 3D modeling and computer animation to test out the scenarios. Then, a team of 15 doctors and surgeons worked on a series of operations to separate them, including expanding the skin and bone in the head with those balloons we mentioned. The longest surgery in the world was separating twins joined at the head. It took doctors 103 hours to do the job. You see that 
in a lot of these surgeries, 12 hours to separate twins in Israel with 50 doctors and, of course, 3D modeling and months of planning, 24 hours and 30 surgeons to separate twins at UC Davis in California, again, with all hands on deck to separate, connect veins, do blood transfusions, reconstruct skulls and tissue. There are so many of these stories, and each of them involves months and months of planning well before the babies are even born. Using high-tech equipment and some of the most skilled surgeons in the world working sometimes days on end is quite remarkable and probably one of the most challenging things to do in an operating room. So those are a few surgery explainers and oh, I wish we had time for more. There are so many things we didn't get to talk about, like time surgeons have had to operate on themselves or theories on head transplants or how we put animal parts inside humans and face transplants. It's such an interesting field. But now, I want to look to the future. What kind of megadroid super surgeon is going to be fixing me up in 10 years, 50 years, or well, I hope really 100 years? It probably won't surprise you to learn we already have some robots in the operating room, and they're pretty good. I mean, they're especially incredible at minimally invasive surgeries because a robot can make a tiny incision and operate without having to cut a hole big enough for a surgeon to fit their hand into. This means smaller scars and less exposed areas. A surgeon working with a robot can have better precision, flexibility, and control with whatever procedure they're doing. In fact, surgeries with robots have lower infection rates for patients. It can also mean less pain and less blood loss, and all of this leads to faster recovery and better survival rates, which is obviously the whole goal. The key point here, though, is that these robots aren't operating on their own. They're remote controlled. It's like a video game played by the surgeon, like a really, really high stakes video game. Uh, don't worry though, if you've ever played Surgeon Simulator, it's nothing like that. It's actually precise and not maddeningly frustrating and obtuse. There are autonomous surgery robots in the works though that wouldn't need a surgeon to actually be pulling the levers and pressing the buttons. Now, most of these autonomous robots work with static body parts, like bones in hip or knee surgeries. But soft tissue is trickier. One self-controlled bot, known as the Smart Tissue Autonomous Robot, or STAR, repaired a pig's small intestines. It performed the surgery using all of its own vision, tools, and intelligence. And when comparing the robot's sutures with a human surgeon's, the robot's stitches were more consistent and evenly spaced. They also held up better and leaked less. This robot is like a long, flexible arm with a rotational head, and it holds the needle, thread, and force sensor. The roboticist had a hard time mimicking the sewing motion of a surgeon's hand, so this robot works more like a nail gun, lining up the needle and shooting it through the tissue. It guides itself with calibration based on 3D images from small cameras on the head. The researchers behind STAR said they see a future operating room of robots operating on their own with supervision by a surgeon. But one of my favorite visions about the future is less about large auto robots that cut people open and root around and more about tiny autonomous robots. These are nanobots so small they can get into your bloodstream and travel straight to the source of the problem and fix the body from the inside out. I mean, talk about minimally invasive. That's it. There's no incision required. But the barrier to integrating both big and small autonomous robots, according to scientists, is that it's hard for robots to recognize and respond to soft tissue, which is all of the gooey stuff that we'd need them to fix. So 
What's next is to design robots that have a hypersensitive sense of touch. One project on this is giving their bots an artificial skin sensor of sorts. That way a robot could feel the difference between different organs rather than following a program or using cameras that it would have to interpret the images from. Still, AI is not at the point yet where machines can autonomously make the same decisions as an experienced surgeon, which is why the future of surgery is less about replacing surgeons and more about giving them better technology to use. That's not to say artificial intelligence doesn't have a place in medicine at all. It's a tool that just keeps getting better. Today, hospitals can analyze data collected from surgeries worldwide to help them predict outcomes for their patients. In particular, there are systems being developed that allow a doctor to collect genetic information from a patient's blood and then run it through a database to see how that individual is likely to react to surgery, medicines, and anesthesia. This alone can help the success rate of surgeries and help surgeons prepare for specific scenarios. AI could even one day monitor the surgeons themselves to make sure that they're in tip-top shape and warn them if it senses they're about to make a wrong move. Now, something that's really annoying for a surgeon, I've read, obviously I don't know from experience, is when they can't clearly see into a patient's body. You remember that we talked earlier about how being able to visualize inside the human body was huge for surgeons so they could actually know what they're dealing with when they sliced into someone. The whole field improved so much just from pictures and textbooks and then again from dissecting cadavers. Today, we have even more tools for this. There are artificial 3D models that bleed when they're cut, so surgeons can practice on those. They can also experience new surgeries in virtual reality. Even just the ability to watch videos of surgeries happening worldwide has made for better surgeon education all around. But Funny enough, something so simple is still a massive issue for surgeons, and that is lighting. Not having enough light or having light that causes glares or shadows isn't just annoying. It can mean not seeing something critical mid-operation, and it could be the difference between life and death. That's why it's kind of surprising that the lighting in operating rooms hasn't evolved much in the last decade. To remedy this, electronics engineers have partnered with Mayo Clinic to make smarter lights that use machine learning and cameras to analyze and alter the intensity and direction of light for surgeons. One day, these lights may be able to respond to voice commands and react to movement in the room. In fact, turning the entire operating room into a kind of smart house, you know, like that old Disney Channel movie, it's basically the whole idea. If the room can respond to voice commands or even follow clues with its own intelligence, it could automatically clean surfaces, zap germs with UV, even prep machines for intake of organs as they're removed or set aside temporarily. But having all this technology involved in surgeries, well, it's making some people nervous. They wonder about robots having a glitch or malfunctioning, or where blame should be placed if a surgery or diagnosis by a non-human goes wrong. For a lot of people, the whole goal of medicine should be more about preventing people from needing surgery in the first place. But because the practice is advancing so much since the early days, surgery has gotten so much better, at least we can get more confident that the procedures of the future will really be incredible and safe. We could get into the future of medicine and preventative care on another episode if you like. But for now, we're going to leave it at that. Thank you so much for tuning into Seeker Plus. I'm your host, Julian Huguet. If you like this series, make sure to like, comment, share, and of course, subscribe. We'll be making a lot more of these going forward. So please let us know what topics you want us to cover. We can do anything. It's up to us. We could talk about blockchains or futuristic airplanes or brewing champagnes. We'll see you next time.